This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet. I'm Head of Programming, Connor Boyle. For this episode of the podcast, we're hearing from Richard Sennett, the sociologist who is Centennial Professor of Sociology at the London School of Economics, has produced studies over five decades which have given particular focus to areas such as how we coexist in urban spaces and our places of work. But his new book looks at the role of performance in society. The Performer is a book exploring how the notion of performance in the arts can be a mirror to the roles found elsewhere in life, such as in politics and wider everyday business. Across all of them, we're often being encouraged to try and make ourselves the main attraction. Joining Richard in conversation for this episode is someone who is no stranger to the merits of good performance, Philip Collins. A shaper of effective narratives, he was chief speechwriter to Tony Blair and has been an influential writer and columnist at publications ranging from The Times of London to Prospect Magazine and The Evening Standard. He also heads up writing company The Draft. Let's join Philip now with more. Well, Richard Sennett, welcome to Intelligence Squared. Uh, my name's Philip Collins. Delighted to uh, talk to you today, Richard. Um, we're going to talk about your latest book, The Performer, Arts, Life and Politics, but that subtitle says it all, it's everything. And we're going to talk about the role of performance and theatre in politics and of politics in theatre. And in my former life as a speechwriter, I was absolutely staging politics. That's what I was doing. So just tell me a little bit, Richard, about how the, the fascinating autobiographical beginnings of this book. Just tell us a lot about you and a, and a life before the life of the distinguished sociologist. I had a kind of schizophrenic life because I began life as a, as a, a cellist, as a, a concert cellist. Um, I had a very bad uh, hand injury and surgery to repair that injury, which didn't do it. And all of a sudden, I was cast on. I needed to make a living. I'd been gone to a, a music conservatory. I had read many books. And all of a sudden, I had to make my living doing something else. And I've always been interested in sociology, particularly of cities. Uh, so I began to study that as a mature student in, uh, in university. Um, so those were the two parts of my life. And in this book, I tried to sort of bring them back together. What I wanted to, I'll tell you how, how this book got started. When I, I went to a Donald Trump rally uh, about 
I guess about eight years ago, uh, I was struck by what a wonderful performer he was, as long as you didn't listen to what he said. His, his gestures were incredible. Uh, his, uh, the rhythms in his speech were very melodic and flowing. And it occurred to me that he was, he had a lot of the skills of uh, performance that a musician would have. Uh, so long as you didn't listen to what he said. And of course, that also struck me about, uh, when, when I started thinking about it, about Boris Johnson, uh, who, you know, uh, his words are bilged, uh, but his manner of enacting them is, is very artful. So I began thinking about what is this relationship between performing in public as politicians and as musicians. And what was disturbing to me about this was, you know, I loathed uh, uh, Trump, and the less said about Boris Johnson, the better. But um, that this cast a kind of shadow about the kind of ways we think about art, and particularly high art, as being insulated from all the dirt of everyday life. And that's what my book tries to look at. It tries to look all, at all those ambiguities uh, from the point of view of a performer, not as a, a, a politician so much. Oh. Um, so that's that's how I got into this. I mean, it's fascinating. I, I agree. Trump is the most fascinating um, phenomenon of modern politics for the reason you give. I, I was struck too by the the theater of location. Again, taking your point that he's, be he's better without with the sound down, better without any words. But there was a time in the 2016 campaign when Trump went to Gettysburg to do a speech. And every American president goes to Gettysburg and does what is essentially a sort of cover version of the famous Abraham Lincoln. It's, and it's a homage to American democracy. And Trump went there and he delivered a diatribe against... American politics and claimed that his opponent Hillary Clinton should be in prison and he chose theatrically the the battlefield at Gettysburg to do that sort of thing now that was I mean malign a word you use often in the book but 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 political theater of a kind of genius kind uh, I, I so I just sort of grudging admiration for it um, well yes uh, and you would as a speechwriter to me, uh, I, I went to a similar event um, in Philadelphia in uh, 2016. It's just incredibly uncomfortable because there are things that one recognizes in what well, one thinks is you know high art, which are very close to that kind of staging, you know. Uh, and uh, I went, uh, when I heard him speak in Philadelphia, uh, I went uh, with a friend of mine who's a choreographer, and she said, this is just incredible. This man has more stage presence than any of my dancers. He's completely comfortable in his body. But I think the other thing about this that maybe we should talk about is that oftentimes we think with a performer, the, the performer is doing something to the spectator. And that's sort of, um, 
uh, you know, Trump's audience or Boris Johnson's audience have been, they've been seduced uh, against their will, that there's no element of participation in that. And that's not wrong. That's not right. That there's an element, a willingness to believe, a willing suspension of disbelief. A kind of complicity, I would say, uh, in the case of Boris Johnson, he, uh, everybody knows what he says is, you know, he lies and so on. But there's a kind of, you know, like, oh, that's Boris, he's having it on, isn't he amusing? Which is a kind of complicity. And so I've been very struck by listening uh, to people who were former Brexiteers say, oh, we were had by him. And the truth is, in art, it's not that simple. You're never had by a performer. There's some way in which you wanted to be had. You wanted to be seduced. Yes, I strongly agree with that, yeah. I mean, it goes all the way back to the very origins of the discipline, in a way, doesn't it? Because, you know, in the, in the Republic, the Plato's expelling of the poets from, from the Republic on the grounds that they will be too toxic, they're too dangerous. Um, and, and one little... Um, exposure to a piece of poetry and the, the audience will not be able to cope with it. They'll simply go out and do exactly as Plato commands. And of course it's not true. And people still think that. I get that uh, very often as a newspaper columnist. People essentially accuse me of, of creating opinion. Um, would that were would that true? But of course it's not true. If it, only it was exactly. in your power. Uh, That's right. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, in, uh, uh, in music... The same thing is, is true. We often, you know, we speak about a charismatic performer on stage. In fact, they're not just sitting there playing notes. There's a whole, uh, even the body movements, the, you know, occasional looking away from the piano, all of that. That's all a way of drawing the audience in. So they're also playing along at the same time that you're playing mentally. And to get that kind of presence on stage is, um, you know, you learn over the course of time how to do that, how to judge, to deal with audience noise, all of that. So, uh, and certainly in, in, uh, in dance performances, um, in, or, uh, or no performances in, in uh Japan, the whole notion is that there's a duet going on and that the performer who simply displays what he or she can do as though the audience was a kind of impersonal judge uh, is not a very good performer. Uh, if I can just say one thing about this, when I was a kid, I went to hear often uh, the whenever I could, the uh, piano performances of Arturo Rubinstein, great, great musician. People always said, oh, he's so unlike other musicians, just sits down and plays the piano. And what I noticed about him, since I'd worked in the theater as well, was that his body movement just rocked back and forward in rhythm with what he was playing. He suddenly became aware of this little small man who didn't smile, had no expression, was getting you into this rocking motion with him as these phrases occurred. 
So that's the kind of thing. It's something that performers want. We want to elicit that kind of complicity. You mentioned that people, performers learn and get better. And of course we do. But one of the things which again goes right back to the origins of this discipline is, is the question about whether that kind of charisma, that kind of really overt character that a politician like Donald Trump exhibits is something which is just given or is it something which is affected and learned? And the extent to which someone who might not have much of that naturally can in fact gain charisma, can can learn character, can become characterful in the performing sense. It's something I wrestle with all the time, trying working with politicians. How far do you think it is a, a sort of a, a simple characteristic, a trait of a person, or how far is it a process with a series of of rules and procedures which can be learned? And one way that I have found to think about it is to turn away from politics and to look at a religious ritual as a performance. Uh, If you were a Jew like me, you would be trained in ways to mourn when somebody is killed. Uh, you'd be or who dies. You would learn how to say Kaddish, how to move, and so on. And only once you made the correct moves uh, could uh, would the the prayers itself have a kind of charismatic force, transforming everybody else. So you have to learn very carefully how to pray. And I imagine that's true in Christianity as well. Uh, The word charisma means a gift of grace, as though you're filled with the higher spirits, you know. Um, uh, Just as word in Greek, mythos, means I heard a story that came from someone else. We feel about a charismatic figure that they are... um, that they're being filled up with something that's magical. But in fact, I, I don't think it's, it's quite that. I, 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 it's one of the interesting relations between ritual and acting, that uh, rituals are very strict performances. They have to be done just right. Whereas an actor can, you know, improvise. Once, once you and the audience are together there, you can either, I mean, it's very liberating. You make mistakes when you're on stage, slap your hand, and people are there with you, you know? <laughs> bat, bat. You know, you know, what, whereas what, you, you can't do that if you're offering up a prayer for the no. dead. What you say is absolutely true in the Christian church. I, I, I married a Hindu, and I grew up in the Anglican church, and I insisted that we, we had a Hindu wedding, but I insisted we also have an Anglican wedding. And my wife, who is a believer, was absolutely astonished that I, a a very um, almost aggressive non-believer, wanted nevertheless the Anglican ritual. And I said, well, no, I may be an atheist, but I'm an Anglican atheist. And and the act of performing the ritual of the marriage service, which I'd been at hundreds of times in my life, was to me the act of marriage. And it was, in a sense, detachable from the words, strange enough, exactly as you were saying. There's something in the performance and the enactment which was the meaning. Right, right. And for somebody who is a Hindu, is it that strict? Not really. No, no. There's, 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 it's highly ritualistic, 
but also quite specific to regions. And, and also, you find out that every single time you do it, in fact, it's, it's, it's subtly different. Um, so it, there's a, it, it's more like jazz. You know, there are motifs. So the difference would be, it's really a difference in time, that it's much more relaxed in time. Uh, in a synagogue, the time is parceled out very strictly. And the, um, uh, as in these rituals of mourning also, which are not in the synagogue, but can be in the house, there's almost, only so much time uh, for each thing. Whereas in the jazz performance, you know, or maybe in, uh, in a Hindu uh, uh, ritual, time is, is it's more elastic. And, and that's... Um, it's a very interesting thing about about uh, about uh, performers' sense of time. Uh, for us as musicians, keeping a fundamental pulse in time is, of course, absolutely critical. So making the listener feel that they're hearing something which coheres, but then you begin to play with it. You have retards, you have speed ups, but they're all within a framework which is quite which is quite determinate. So that that's uh, that's also interested me. When when I was um, at the end of my career as a musician, I had the great uh, privilege of working with disciples of Merce Cunningham, uh, a great uh, American, uh, American dancer. And for Cunningham, uh, time is is free, and it was very hard for me to, you know, I count, you know, I know, uh, I count religiously, as it were. Uh, but for him, it was well, you know, maybe we spend an extra five minutes on on doing that, just improvise again. So it's it's quite an interesting thing about about this God. That's another way in which performing has a whole set of meanings which can't be narrowly pinned to just enacting a verbal meaning. Much much more complicated. I'm interested too in those novels which then tried to do the same thing. The modernist novel trying to enact a performance of time and to stretch time. You think of the great passage in To the Lighthouse. Time passes in which Virginia Woolf suddenly collapses 10 years into, into a few pages, whereas the first passage of part of the book, which is much longer, is just really Mrs. Ramsey's thoughts over the course of an evening. And the, the that critique of the old linear idea of time, which you get in that novel, um, as writers played with that, and trying to capture what it's really like to experience time. Um, it's not like... Richard Senate counting the beat, is it? It's more like Merce Cunningham saying it's free, it's elastic, it changes. Yeah. Um, but there is a limit to that, you know, it be, and the limit, and it's my own belief in this, the limit is that you can watch this cutting free happen, but it's very hard to enter into it spontaneously. Well, we enter, at least in music, what we enter into spontaneously is marked rhythm. And that's because of our heartbeat, uh, the way we coordinate our our our, uh, our hand movements so so that they they have symmetry and so on. Um, 
And it's, a, I guess, a kind of fundamental issue about uh, what performing does. Does it, does it actually give us a frame or does it break a frame? And that's, that's an issue I try and look at in, in my book, which is not far from politics. Well, I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, when you said there, there's a limit to that. That's what I wanted to ask, because in the case of both the two performers we've discussed so far, Boris Johnson and Donald Trump, but then there are also others, there are there have proved to be limits to that. I mean, we've been talking a lot about their non-verbal persuasive power, but as we stand, as we speak, neither of them are in power. They're both the, the systems of power around them dealt with both of them, perhaps temporarily in the case of Donald Trump, but there clearly were limitations. That, that charismatic, persuasive, theatrical performance only takes you so far. Absolutely. This is a difference between politics and religion, because if you're a priest uh, and you, you observe the rules of the performance, uh, you can do it again and again and again. But in political life, uh, charisma tends to wear out. Uh, in my book, I, I was sort of interested in this about Louis XIV, who was a great dancer, a great performer. But, you know, his body wore out. And also the repetition of the same performance time after time in politics, it loses its force. And that's what happened to to Boris in uh, you know it was arousing for a year unfortunately arousing during the year that he took us out of the European Union and then the whole thing fell apart you know it, it was over his, in the words of the sociologist Max Weber his charisma deserted him it's a very nice phrase isn't it and that happens to most politicians. There are very few politicians who are like Winston Churchill, who have a kind of enduring charismatic hold over the public. I can't think of any modern British politician, Blair, not at all. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. 
I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Churchill's a fascinating case in point because it it shows the, the necessity of meeting, of your charisma meeting the moment. Because Churchill, for most of his career, was a case study in, in almost in sort of lavish absurdity rhetorically because he'd lavish words on situations that really didn't warrant them. And then there was one occasion early in the in the late nineteenth century when he was um, standing as a as a by election candidate um, in all of them, and he in a church hall with nobody there, three people in the whole place. He said, "Never before in the history of all of them have so many people had so much food to eat," and it's absolutely terrible. But then you can hear the locution forty years later, and of course the moment is is worthy of it, and and so. Suddenly, that that meeting, the drama, is is created by the by the context, and you know that that's that. The, so the, the you can't manufacture the theatre, is what I'm saying. Right, but do you mean that that he he was not a charismatic politician until the Second World War? Would that no, be fair to say? He was a charismatic politician, but the the things that made him durably and justly famous required. What, as what they would have called the Kairos, the moment to meet the charisma. The charisma had its moment, I suppose, is my, is my point. Right. Do you think this will happen to Keir Starmer, <laughs> who is not so, so far a uh, uh, charismatic politician to me? He acts well as lawyers act well, but. Uh... Yeah, it's, it's a difficult thing. I, I don't think it will. And, I, and it's, I was, it's an interesting question, isn't it? That's why I was going where I was going with to the extent to which you can you can improve or you can add verve and charisma as you go. I wonder whether the mantle of office is in part that. So in part you gain weight, if not charisma, through through office and, and through being um, a significant person but but Starmer does doesn't does not do this naturally he's not someone who is comfortable particularly in that setting so it's um and it's a very interesting question when you're writing for someone like that is to what extent can you create a character because to, when I say create a character it sounds like a piece of fiction of course it's not but it's just that the character you are playing unlike in a drama is a version of yourself and it's it's somewhere somewhere between the act of of, of dramatizing and scripting and of, of, of saying what somebody might themselves say. Have you had the experience of creating that character for someone which they then resist? Yes, often, often. Um, a lot of sort of corporate CEOs where you're trying to find something. 
But usually, if they resist, there's a reason, and it's probably because the if the if they don't feel the character is right for them, then clearly it's not going to work. Because the task is to is to create something which is simultaneously a character, but is also the character that this person genuinely exhibits, albeit in exaggerated form. So that twin meaning of the idea of character, both something you have and something you play, and that that's the rhetorical task. Well, think about how different that is to. Oftentimes, when we're in in, in music, oftentimes when we're in a, a rehearsal, a conductor uh, uh, forget about tar. In the real world, a conductor will ask people to do things which they don't think are the right way to play. The bowings are wrong, so on. And the resistance that musicians put up is you can hear because they suddenly become very passive. They ex exercise the motion that they're asked to play, but there's no feeling in it. And for a good conductor, a great conductor like Bernstein, there is even though he's you know wildly dramatic on on stage as you see when you when you see the film next uh, if you see it next week or about him, it's always an intuiting of the resistance that the players have and an adaptation to it. So it's a it's a very different you know. Maybe that's true for you too, as a speechwriter, that their resistance is something you adapt to, rather than say you've got to be my character if you want to succeed. But for us, it's a it's a much subtler kind of thing, and it's it's one of the reasons that it's a false analogy to take uh, music conductors as being like political leaders. They're doing something that's much, much different. Um, and they're always, it's why we record over and over again. It's a very, you know, the performance is never fixed because there are always these elements uh, of resistance and submission that are kind of dialectic that's going on in any kind of uh, 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 a group performance. The same thing is true in, in uh, dance too. Uh, so you're working with characterization, which is not really you, mm -hmm. you know, whereas it sounds like, I think you must be more seductive of these politicians than I ever was as a, as a conductor. Uh, <laughs> you're trying, you're trying to find something in someone because audiences, um, and I think this is true, this comes out in the book too, audiences are sophisticated, even they, they can sniff something which is the work of a clever writer and which doesn't really tally with what they know of the person out up there speaking. It's a very exposed place when you speak. And as you said before, it really resonated with me. This is not a, dia a monologue, it's a dialogue. It's a dialogue with the audience. And, and if the audience is not brought into that conversation, then, then they reject it. So you can't stretch it too far, in, in fact. Yeah, but you can also corrupt an audience through dialogue, which Plato knew, you know. Yeah, and uh, Boris Johnson's a great example of that. He basically corrupted the public. Um, and um, we're living with the consequences of that. He, um, um, sorry to be uh, so straightforward about this, but uh, that, you know, it just, he didn't do it to people. 
It was a dialogue in which people colluded in their own, in what turns out to be a, a great, great wound for our country. One of the other aspects of the book, which, which connects very intimately with your work as a sociologist, is the, the idea of performance as a, an essentially urban and collective event. Um, and I want to talk a bit about that, but also to talk about the trans transition slowly from the from the location of performance, the urban setting, to what you call the digital cave, because the spectacle's shifting, isn't it, in ways which we can't quite control and which are worrying. Right. Well, this is a you know a kind of uh, obsession of, of mine. Um, the thing about uh, about if you made a very, very crude uh, historical kind of picture, you know, performing began as something out in the open. It was something uh, which could be done on the streets, uh, done in amphitheaters, but it was essentially open air. And in the Renaissance, which is when the first totally enclosed theaters uh, appeared, uh, with Palladio, something happened to the experience of performing itself. It withdrew from the street in a way that was harder before, not entirely. Uh, and the uh, kind of performing online takes that withdrawal from the street to an extreme, and it does so, in a, I think, in a particular way, which is that there are no mistakes in performing online. Everything is correctable. It's true for us when we do, you know, take after take of a musical phrase just to get make sure we, we haven't we haven't done anything wrong. Uh, and what it, that does is take an essential tension that uh, is brings a live performance alive, makes it. Will it work? Will it go on? You know, is it going to happen? Yeah. Uh, and when you take that tension away digitally, online, either through recordings or, or through podcasts like this, unless they, they leave us intact, Phil, and don't cut us. <laughs> Let's make some deliberate errors just to, just to make Absolutely. the point. Oh, I don't believe that. Uh, <laughs> uh, what happens is that, you know, there's a, it's a loss of one element of connection between the the um, the spectator as a kind of witness about what's happening online as a judge for is it going all right or not uh, and the performer himself and that's been removed uh, uh, online performances uh, and I mean it started with film but I mean digitally I don't know how this works with politicians, but I imagine it's the same with musicians. You can cut so finely a person's movement that and almost any kind of thing is 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 possible. There are no errors. Um, and um, if, say, yesterday's interview with Michelle Moan had been pre-filmed, she would not have committed suicide the way she did because it was live. It wasn't a podcast. 
It was something. And now this is, it seems to me that digital thing is, it, uh, the whole digital technology is removing something that's very essential, uh, or can remove, I should say, something that's very essential in that, that dialogue between uh, performer and spectator. I do think that's exactly the same in politics. I, I think the analogy holds absolutely what you can um, erase differences, and you don't get that sense of a, of a political performer sort of growing in front of audiences and, and learning and communicating in that way, the, the old style of, of politics. I mean, I suppose television is the first stage in the change of that. I mean, every, with every technology, politicians have said that things have been fundamentally different. You know, the wireless did the same thing, and then the television, and now the movement online. I suppose the other thing it does in politics, and I wonder if this is true in other um, realms of life, is that um, it changes the relationship with the audience in the sense that we can target the audience much more directly and accurately than has ever been possible before. The, in the search for an audience, was once upon a time that was a very broadcast search. Now you can be extremely narrow. You know, in the, um, in, in the ancient theaters, of course, everybody in the city had a right to be in the theater. You know, there was uh, there was a way you could tell how, how an audience was different. People, if you lived in ancient Athens, people from different parts of the city sat in different uh, uh, different places in the theater. But in Renaissance theaters, uh, open air theaters, as for Commedia dell'arte, you couldn't choose your audience. They were just whoever was on the street, and. Uh, and that's why this whole thing about enclosure is so in, important. Uh, when, th when performance has a kind of porous relationship to the street, you have a kind of completely different dynamic uh, and in imagination. It's a, a dynamic of holding somebody's attention so they don't wander off. Uh, the way the street busker has, it's a kind of completely different dynamic of performing than the, we're seated in a hall, insulated from noises outside. They don't leave their seats. At most, maybe they get a drink, one of those horrible white wines that you seem to get at the South Banks, and something like that. But you know, basically, you're, you're immobilized. You're not moving. And I think that lack of porosity between, you know, the movement of, of, of people is also a way of making theater um, more tyrannical in a certain, in a certain way. Um, very interesting, by the way, about Hitler's speeches in open air. That I don't know if you know this, the backs of the theaters were lined by armed um, SS guards. Great. And if people thought, I've had enough of this crackpot, and turned around to go, there was a line of people, you know, with guns Great. taking a good look at you, and you turn back around. Now, that's, that's a precursor of something that's happening more uh, viscerally in enclosed theater. It's why I'm very, inter I'm very interested in um, 
in how, how to design theatrical spaces which have a kind of, which are more open to the street, which are more urban in that sense, uh, which, aren't, which aren't sealed boxes. Uh, and it's an interesting problem because you sacrifice something for that. It's acoustics are bad. Oftentimes the sight lines are horrible. But if you just think about what it's like to listen for five minutes to a busker in, in the depths of, of, uh, of a tube, thing, it's, it's an experience that is uh, of a kind of intensity that you, if you heard him recorded, you'd never, you'd never have as a, as, a, as a listener. So that's also a dimension of the book. How do we cover the, recover the physical spaces which uh, which sort of bring performing back into into the street. I mean, there are lots of ways in all forms in which the digital world is making performance difficult and changing it. But there's there's one way in which it I think it probably helped. I wonder what you think about it. Which is that the the very poor economics of making music have so, sort of led to a, a complete renaissance of performance. In popular music, for example, performance is where where the money is, and the the I mean, it's not just Dylan on his never-ending tour, but lots of bands are out on the road a lot, and there's been a huge surge in in play and in performance, and it's a it's a response really to a, to the fact that it's very difficult to make money from the production of the artifact, but but performance has been going through a boom time. Well, that's not uh, unfortunately um, the case in the performing arts, and that has to do with um, a misunderstanding of this government about about um, uh, audiences themselves. It's a kind of uh, reverse snobism that's involved in saying, let's get, for instance, the uh, ENO uh, out of London. And take it to the people in the um, in the provinces. Um, let's um, uh, let's what, what is it called? Let's level up yeah, musical performance. That's actually a notion that local performances aren't really going to be attractive to people, and that's not true in the musical world. Um, that. People go to small concerts by unknown musicians all the time. Not the way they do in popular music, but if you think about uh, what's going to happen now uh, during Christmas with the number of performance people go just to hear music sung. And what's horrible about, I think, about what the arts councils and the government are doing to performing is that with this reverse snobbism about, oh, we've got to get all the top guns out of London, is that the actual performers themselves are losing um, a way of making a living. It's true in the ENO. It's also true for dance troops and, and so on. Um, it's true for blindborn uh, traveling uh, groups. And I think this, this, I mean, you know, these are, these are bureaucrats, these Arts Council people. But what they don't understand about this is that people can have a wonderful experience at a concert 
which is not a, a concert of somebody who's got a big name. You know, they can actually want to go to a concert because they want to hear the music, you know, or they know somebody who's uh, singing, something like that. And all that gets discounted with this notion of we have to decentralize uh, the arts. And uh, I'm sorry to go on about this, but uh, for artistic production, big cities are a necess necessity. Um, uh, William Empson once remarked that the arts result from overcrowding. And that is you've got a lot of people who are competing and conspiring with each other at the same time in the same place for not so much work, but they're in terms of being makers, there are lots of them, too many. It's an overpopulated world. And it stimulates the creative juices um, in a way that is in the performing arts very, uh, which is very good. If you can see the work of six or eight other dance companies in a month uh, in one place, um, it'll affect your work. And that's why I think the, the, the policy of sort of starving London is a way, it's, it's not understanding what's necessary for people to actually, for artists actually to, uh, to be stimulated. Yeah. And I try and make that argument in my book, too. Probably very unpopular, seem very elitist, but any artist knows what I'm talking about, you know? If you go to one concert a month, you know, you're not learning anything about the, as it were, your, your brothers or sisters in arms. And I think we can draw the analogy back to political speech as well, because when I was writing a book on the great speeches, I was, I was really drawn over and over again back to three places that I was drawn back to Athens, I was drawn to Washington DC, and I was drawn to Berlin, the three great cities of politics of the time when great words are spoken. And for some of the same reasons, there were you know, an overabundance of people with an overabundance of thoughts about politics that needed to be negotiated in that place at that time. And that clustering, that that I mean, this is this really is. We're back where we started, bringing all the strands of your long career together: um, the city and the performance and play. Well, um, maybe it's a good point uh, to stop. I, I just say for myself about this. I mean, of course, I'm interested in the political uh, side of performing. How not? But I also think what I hope people will get from this book is a sense that the kind of ambiguities of performing, its, its virtues and its vices, ramify out into all kinds of other uh, spheres, into religion, into everyday life, where, you know, even into marriages, raising children. We're always on stage, but that's... Um, that can be a loss or a gain. And as performers, we're always a little like Boris Johnson. We're always losing our our, our, our charisma, uh, you know, unless it's renewed by other people or circumstances. So that's what I've tried to get at in this book, this kind of capacity to do harm and to do good uh, through the act of impersonation. Well, we'll end with the, the, the words you open the book with, the famous 
Shakespearean line, all the world's a stage. Um, Richard Sennett, thank you very much for that conversation. It was fascinating to talk to you. The performer, art, life, politics, uh, Richard Sennett, probably recommended um, play and performance through the ages. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay and edited by Tom Hall. If you want to keep up with everything going on at Intelligence Squared, sign up for the newsletter. Head over to intelligencesquared.com to get the heads up on all our live events coming up. And members can also peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds. That's all over at intelligencesquared.com.